It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. The purpose of our time together today is to focus on the essence of yoga philosophy as is described in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And we're going to use as uh, seeds for the theme or the idea the first three sutras of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, chapter one. We may get to the fourth because the fourth is also useful to kind of tie it all together. But we want to look at these first sutras because while there are many practices, there are many reasons to practice yoga, uh, the beginning of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali described to us what the purpose of yoga practice is. What exactly does it mean to be practicing yoga? Why are you doing the meditation techniques that you are doing? Why are you practicing service the way you're practicing it? Why are you doing certain breathing exercises? Why are you engaging these eight limbs of yoga practice? All of this is described at the very beginning of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And the reason that we use the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, uh, the Yoga Sutras for a few reasons uh, are important because Number one, when Paramahansa Yogananda was coming to the United States, as I've been told, he was with his teacher, Swami Sri And Swami Sri said, if you go now, all doors will be open to you. And then he also said, and as you teach Kriya Yoga, teach it based on the, the philosophies and the principles and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So that is why this is so important for Kriya Yoga practice. Number two, the Yoga Sutras, many different types and schools and philosophies, uh, teachers can draw upon the Yoga Sutras because they are universal principles of yoga. So it's specific to the Kriya Yoga process, but it's also universal to yoga as a whole. Now, the first sutra seems really just like an introduction. And that sutra essentially says, now instruction in yoga practice, or now the instruction of yoga. Some people translate that as now instruction in yoga in line with an established tradition. But it's implied that you've already been living life a certain way, you're already part of a tradition, and now you can practice yoga because you are prepared. In Sanskrit, atta yoga nushasanam, atta yoga nushasanam. And those words, atta yoga anushasanam, now yoga instruction. The first word, now, is important for a few reasons. Because it is that word which implies 
that you are ready to practice. Now is the time. You are ready, you are prepared. In the same way that if you are getting ready to uh, go play uh, uh, a game or uh, a sports event, well, now is the time to go do it. You've done your training, you're ready to go out there and play the game. In the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program, I begin by telling people that one of the things that are, are most important to do before beginning a really intensive yoga meditation practice routine is to have your life in order. Mr. Davis talked about this. Yogananda talked about this. Many, many yoga teachers speak about how having an organized life is ideal. So a lot of people don't necessarily stick with yoga um, because they want to be a free spirit and they don't want to have discipline and they don't want to wake up and do the same thing every day because that just makes life boring. Well, the purpose of yoga isn't really about uh, this specific human life. The specific human life is here to practice yoga. And so number one, having an organized life is ideal. Knowing what you're going to do every day, eating at the same time every day, exercising on a regular schedule, doing your duty consistently, meditating at the same time, doing your best to have an organized schedule. Because once you get in that kind of a groove, um, you're less likely to say, well, what am I supposed to do today? Or what is the purpose of life? Or um, why am I here? Well, you know why you're here. You've got your checklist. You get up and you do it every day. This is also useful because too many people waste time in useless decision-making. Uh, some of you have heard of the term decision fatigue. And that's usually when you get at the end of your work day and you've already thought about this email, thought about that, made this choice for this meeting, picked out your clothes here, decided you want the chocolate donut rather than the caramel glazed donut. By the time you get to the end of the day, you've made so many decisions that you tend to make poor decisions because you have what's called um, decision fatigue. So if you have your life outlined already as best to your ability, well, you don't have to worry about decision fatigue because you know what you're going to do. But that's also why we study the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, uh, particularly the Yamas and the Niyamas, which I've discussed um, in the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship course as well as, well as on the uh, YouTube channel, or, uh, Kriya Yoga Online. But if you live your life uh, in relationship to the yamas and niyamas, you have an option to tell the truth or lie. Well, since one of the yamas is truthfulness, you don't even have to think about it. You don't have to make a decision. You just tell the truth. If you have a decision to be sentimental and attached to something or not, you know non-attachment is part of the practice of yoga. So no need for making a decision. You can just do that. And this is so important because when you're meditating, uh, you will have more uh, inner energy, inner vitality to do the work that is required to hold your attention within. So in the very beginning, having an organized life is ideal. Now, instruction, yoga, why? Because your life is organized, you're ready to go. On top of that, um, now instruction and yoga. Uh, others have come to this same conclusion, but now is important because you can only practice yoga now. And you need to take some time to think about this because a lot of people, they're always doing something for the future. Uh, certain religions, you do something so you can get into heaven. You do something so you can be enlightened later. But the beauty and the aha moment you'll have with, with yoga practice one day is you'll recognize, wait a minute, 
there really isn't anything other than now. And now is when I'm to be doing what the practices of yoga are, which is, as we'll see, being fully present now. And that doesn't mean you choose to be, I will be fully present when everything's going my way and there's happiness everywhere. That's not what it's saying. Yoga is practice now, which means if you're in the midst of despair or a tragedy has happened and sorrow is the appropriate response, well, now is when you practice yoga, which means you are fully present with that sorrow. Now the sun is shining and you're playing uh, badminton with your niece now you practice yoga. Now you are present with that joy and with that freedom and with that love. And this is what trips a lot of people up because, again, they're thinking yoga happens when everything is, is working out my way from the personality perspective. But no, yoga is happening now, which means you are present now in every moment. And this is where, as we get deeper into yoga, um, we begin to have to understand the yamas and niyamas, things like non-attachment. And this is where, again, people get tripped up because they start to feel a little crazy compared to what they've been before in the normal human condition. Because if you are now, then that means when a tragedy occurs and it's appropriate to be in sorrow and despair, well, you are in it now. But eventually, that won't be appropriate. And so if you're non-attached, you are with it while it's there, but then when that cloud passes or when the situation passes and you are in a new moment, a new now, you have to let it go. You have to be unattached to that sorrow, to that grief, and then be in relation to what's happening now. This is troublesome to people because the ego, the mind creates a structure that likes to feel a certain way. And many of you feel a certain way all the time, whether you have consistent anxiety or apathy or joy, or you're angry a lot. You, you might not even know it because it's so consistent. It's such a, a theme for you and you hold on to it. So when someone challenges you to let go of that anger or to let go of that despair, to let go of that anxiety, you don't want to. You'll find another reason to experience one of these difficulties because you're comfortable with it. That's how you know who you think you are. Um, and that's not being in the now. So there is a, a letting go of the sentimentality of the personality. And that is stressed. Um, that is stressed in just about every self-realized person's teaching that I've known or studied with or read about or applied. So, we have to remember that this idea of practicing the now, number one, it means that you're prepared, you're ready. You've taken care of all the BS in your life. So you have the energy and the ability to sit down and do the inner work. Um, also, you are as present as possible in every moment. You are in the now. You are, you are choosing to practice yoga at every moment in the now. So it's not, well, should I, should I practice truthfulness? Is this the right occasion? Well, of course it is because truthfulness is yoga. Uh, should I be attached to this right now? Should I be holding on and clinging to this? Well, no, you shouldn't, because non-attachment is yoga practice. Um, should I be possessive of certain things? No, that's, should I be possessive now and not later? Or should I not be possessive now and then come back to it later? No, because yoga practice is non-possessiveness. Um, 
is this a good time to be as harmless as possible, ahimsa? Well, of course it is in every moment. You don't just pick and choose when to practice ahimsa. It's always now. And this, this throws the reality of yoga in your face. This brings it right up to you and makes it real. And you have to have courage, faith, inner strength, these kinds of virtues to do this. You have to develop them. You have to decide, I'm uncomfortable now, but I'm going to try it anyway, until eventually you start to recognize that you can apply these virtues at any time and life is still there, life is still present, yoga is still now. This very first sutra, Hatha Yoga Nushasam, now the instruction of yoga. There are many different levels of this. But what you have to remember from our perspective in this introductory discussion is that what that means is you are prepared. And your preparation actually is yoga practice. So let's say you do have lots of these psychological complexes that make you think funny things about how the world works. Well, attending to those, even if you haven't done a round of pranayama, attending to those is getting you there in the same way that in the beginning you might not be experiencing samadhi and all you can do is pranayama. All you can do is breath awareness. Well, that's yoga practice because it is preparing you for the experience of oneness or samadhi. So everything you do on that spectrum of intention to realizing the self, of inner contentment, of practicing yoga, everything you do, even the smallest thing you do is yoga practice. So even the preparation is yoga practice. The biggest mistake I see with people is they try to jump way ahead. They try to practice internalization of attention when their life is not organized. And they have so many distractions and so many dramas. And they say, well, this yoga just doesn't work. I can't internalize my awareness. It's because they've not set up the structure. They've not set up the life so that drama is minimal, so that stress is as minimal as possible, so that you can easily turn within. Now, that's not to say that stressful things won't happen even to a practitioner of yoga, but one who has done their best to manage it is going to have greater resources to deal with issues that are out of their control when that happens, and they'll still be able to meditate better. In the same way that people who, um, who spend time um, saving money, you know, they, they don't go out to eat as much, or they don't get that new plan on their cell phone, or... Um, they don't spend their time on things which are kind of wasteful. Well, they're going to have more finances in the bank so that if something terrible does happen and they need that money, it's less stressful because they've actually got it versus someone who hasn't attended to that. They're going to have more stress during that time. So everything we do contributes to our inner awakening and everything that we can do to live in accord with yogic ideals in a sense is building up this is just a uh, this is just for the sake of teaching um it's it's building up our reserves so that when we do sit to meditate we have 90 percent less worries than everyone else in the world because we've done our best to organize our life we've attended to our mind and our consciousness and our psychology and our emotions 
So we have 90% less distractions, which means we're going to get a lot more out of the practice of yoga. Now the instruction of yoga. In Sutra 2, Sutra 2, this is the classic sutra that everyone refers to and reads, uh, reads about um, and tries to hopefully pay attention to. And there are many different ways of interpreting this. We have to remember that the Sanskrit language, um, there are a lot of nuances in the words that are used, but it's a very precise language. Uh, so uh, let's see if I've got a copy here. Do I, do I, do I? I might not. It'd be great if I did that here. And this might not be the best example because Mr. Davis does tend to be uh, fairly straight on with his interpretations as well. Uh, but this is from Mr. Davis's book, uh, The Science of Self-Realization, A Guide to Spiritual Practice in the Kriya Yoga Tradition. And this is a discussion on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So he translates the first sutra, now instruction in yoga, in accord with an established tradition. It begins. And this is so you understand how interesting Sanskrit is. When really that, that sutra itself has three words. Ata, yoga, nushasanam, now yoga instruction. And Mr. Davis's uh, commentary kind of uh, translation is actually very concise compared to what some people use. Now the next sutra, samadhi is experienced when fluctuations and changes in the meditator's awareness are restrained and pacified. So this is the translation. Samadhi is experienced when fluctuations and changes in the meditator's awareness are restrained and pacified. That's the translation. And again, other authors will really take that and expand upon it. So all those words came from yoga, chitta, vritti, naroda. So yoga, chitta, vritti, naroda. Four terms, four words. Yoga, yoga, clear. Chitta, the field of consciousness, the perceived. Some people call that the mind. Vritti, mental activity, definitions which limit or define. And Naroda, Naroda, the process of ending. So of these four words, yoga, the field of consciousness, mental activity, process of ending. If we were going to be as literal in regards to what that sutra, yoga, chitta, vritti, naroda, means, it's that. But as I mentioned, Sanskrit requires some understanding of the nuances of words. But the second sutra, what is it saying in its most precise definition? That yoga is the process of ending, the process of ending the changes or fluctuations in the field of consciousness. And that word vritti, mental activity or definitions which limit or define. So here we learn that all that we're doing with yoga practice, yoga is ending the defining 
fluctuations and characteristics in the mind. This is not an easy thing to comprehend or understand, especially when all you know is the mind. And in the beginning, pretty much that's all we know is our thinking process, our labeling process. This is good. This is bad. Oh, this is what I think about this. This is how I feel here. That's an apple. That's a truck. There's a woman. There's a man. There's a light. There's the sun. There's the moon. There's the flowers. There's the grass. Most of us are caught up in this constant defining, limiting, labeling. Why? Because it's safe. Because if you label something, you know what it is. You don't have to think about it anymore. And that's part of the problem with many of the issues with um, prejudice and so on in our world today. If you don't understand something, just give it a label. That's bad. That's black. That's white. That's good. And now you feel good because you know what box to put it in. But those are boxes and those are limiting Again and again, not just in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, um, but in many other texts, or at least I don't read that many other texts, but the few that I do read. This idea of ending what's called uh, precepts, or percepts, I suppose, uh, percepts and concepts, ending conceptualization. When we have organized our life so that we can sit down and practice meditation well, ideally, we are learning to abide free of concepts. Free of concepts. The moment you sit down and close your eyes, there are no more, you can't say that's the chair, that's the light, that's the wall. Your eyes are closed. You've, that's one step of internalization of awareness. You have cut off quite a lot of the things you would conceptualize in your mind. And what's beautiful about just closing your eyes, you know, many people think that meditation is a lot more than that. And it is. But what's beautiful about closing your eyes, um, I've played around with some um, neurofeedback devices. And I've watched the little printouts and things. And now I did this, I began doing this many years after I uh, had already been meditating. Um, so I'm not sure how it works for people who haven't been meditating, but what was, what was really beautiful to watch is the, the moment my eyes closed a good bit of the neural activity in those graphs went down. I mean, it was almost instantaneous, just, just not even practicing the meditation technique, not even trying, just sitting up, breathing and closing my eyes that cut off so much external stimuli, which does what gives greater, um, energy to the nervous system to process consciousness, to go deeper into clarity of consciousness. So everything that you're doing with yoga practice, in a sense, is training you to let go of attachment to concepts. Training you to let go of attachment to concepts. When you're practicing mantra meditation, and you're directing all of your awareness to that phrase, Soham, Hongsal, the Gayatri Mantra, Om Namah Shivaya. When you're giving all of your awareness, your eyes are closed, you're turned within, you're meditating, you're just holding your awareness on that mantra. 
immediately the majority of all of the concepts, all of the mental fluctuations cease because you've brought it down just to one point. You've brought it down to one point. And this is where the work of meditation comes in. The work of, of inner realization comes in with your yoga practice because um, when you start meditating, I don't think this is probably true for most of you, but when you start meditating, there is this sense of, okay, I'm going to do this mantra. I'm going to experience inner peace. And then you start doing it and you experience a little bit of peace because you, you've cut out all the, the concepts, the distracting things around you to the best of your ability. Uh, but then your mind starts kicking in. And, and th though you're trying to hold on to that mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, it's like there's a force trying to pull you. No, you have to think about this problem with your parents. No, you have to think about what's going on with that check. No, you have to think about this health issue that's going on in your life. No, you have to think about what your future is going to be like. No, you have to think about what was going on in that TV show you watched three days ago. No, you have to think about that silly drama that your friend keeps trying to pull you into. It's like you keep you, you bring your awareness to this mantra and now all of a sudden there's it feels like there's this external force pulling you up. Oh, no, pay attention to that. Pay attention to me. And that can be disconcerting in the beginning because the mantra is supposed to just pull you right into uh, deeper awareness, isn't it? Well, no, the mantra is a training tool, a training device. And if you've lived the majority of your life distracted and not having the ability to focus on something, the mantra is going to be hard for you, but it's a training device. It's like saying, by going to the gym, I'm just going to magically get stronger and I'm going to just easily lift greater and greater weights. Well, that's not the reality of it. You go to the gym and you start small and you build up. And of course you go through periods of, of, of uh, soreness in your body, of changes within your body, of not wanting to do it because that's not what your body is used to. But the people who stick to it, they get stronger and then they're fit. The people who stick to the real work of focusing on that mantra or focusing on that uh, type of breath awareness, alternate nostril breathing, uh, Kriya Pranayama, all different kinds of, of Pranayamas breathing you can do. Um, when you can sink, hold your awareness in it, and every time you start to get distracted, you say, well, this is my opportunity to get stronger. You pull it back to the mantra, you pull it back to the Pranayama practice. Well, in time, just like the person who's gone to the gym consistent, consistently, whether they wanted to or not, one day you'll find, oh, yeah, I've just been focusing on this mantra at the exclusion of all else for 10 minutes. Easy. And you are then more deeply relaxed. You are then refreshed. Why? Because you have quit dispersing all of your attention and energy and awareness and life force and all these useless distractions. And for a little while you have held it within and it is in a sense rejuvenated itself. Your consciousness has been clarifying. And the more people do that over decades, then it becomes easier to do that in everyday life. It becomes easier to just be where you are because you've already trained yourself to just be where you are, to focus on that now. In the beginning, it's with a mantra or breath awareness or inner contemplation or inner imagery. But eventually you get so good at it that you're just there. And that is why, um, for example, one of Yogananda's most advanced disciples, 
um, James Lynn, Yogananda said that he became so successful in meditation and yoga practice so quickly because uh, he was already successful in his life. He was a successful business person. And what does that mean? That means he knew how to focus on a job until it was done and letting everything else go. And since he had that skill out in the world, it, it just translated to the work that he does inward. That's why meditators who do it well are often more successful and, um, well, just more successful in life with what they're doing. And so I'm not judging success by money or power, just in what they're doing. Because they can focus on the job until it's done, because they've already learned to do that with their mantra. Uh, so there's no magic in it. It's just training your consciousness to, as we saw in uh, the second sutra, yoga, chitta, vritti, naroda, by ending the fluctuations in the field of consciousness. And you do that by learning to focus. This, this comes out more in the, the yoga sutras. And if you want to study the yoga sutras more deeply, again, Roy Eugene Davis's book, The Science of Self-Realization, uh, the book I wrote, Kriya Yoga, Continuing the Lineage of Enlightenment. It has a commentary on the Yoga Sutras. At kriyayogaonline.com, there's a 26-hour Yoga Sutras course where we go through the whole thing. So this is just the introduction. But that is, that is the essence, the essentials of what we are doing with yoga. Everything we do, which allows us to let go of concepts, let go of these fluctuations, brings us more fully in the present. And sometimes we have to focus on one thing to get good at it. I think meditation is the best way to do it, but ultimately doing it in everything you do in life is the way to support your meditation as well, which means if it's time for you to cook breakfast for yourself, well then that means when you're cracking the egg, when you're frying your potatoes, when you're getting your spinach out, everything you do is I'm just cracking the egg. That's your mantra. I am looking at the spinach. I am frying the potatoes. I'm grabbing the spices. You are there. You're not doing that with your hands, but your mind is thinking about your day ahead. Or you're not doing that with your hands, but your mind is worried about <clears throat> something that you can't prevent, <clears throat> illness, death, or otherwise, that's just part of life. Then that, that moment of cracking the egg, of frying your potatoes, of getting the spinach out, that is, you are letting go of all these other distractions, fluctuations within the mind, and you are strengthening your ability to be there now on that one thing. And this is how yoga starts, by learning to be on one thing at a time. You have to be able to do that before you can let go of it all and experience freedom from everything. You have to start with focusing on one thing at a time. So everything you do, can be part of this practice. And it, that is why instruction in yoga is now, because you want to do that in every moment. If, you want to, if there's going to be a time when you need to worry about uh, a meeting with a doctor, well then, worry about it when you get to the doctor. And you, well, how can I do that? You train yourself. There will be a time for worry. <laughs> there will be a time to just focus on making breakfast. This is the hardest thing that many people face when they're practicing yoga because it seems almost inhuman. And again, 
yoga is not about supporting your human experience. The human experience is there to support yoga. This is why uh, those realized beings seem so just different than everyone else because they know the purpose of life. And Yogananda said that too. He said, the purpose of life is much different than what we think it is. It's not about all these things that culture and our society has brought to us. It is about mastering our consciousness, mastering our consciousness. Now, the third sutra. Tada drashtu svarupe vastanam. Tada drashtu svarupe vastanam. Then the seer abides in its own nature. Then the seer abides in its own nature. So tada then, drashtu of the seer or I. Svarupe, in essence, in my own nature. Avastanam, abidance, remaining. So again, we have, in a sense, kind of four terms. And Mr. Davis, well, he, he really sticks to the meat of it here. The seer then consciously abides in its own nature. So now instruction in yoga. Here it is. This is your time. And when I've contemplated this or, or even re remembered trying to work that in, I can remember having a feeling of resistance to it. Or if you've ever um, played with magnets and, you know, if you, if you, if you flip the magnets around and, and you try to push them together, there's a certain way that they just repel each other. They repulse each other. And I can remember dwelling upon this and knowing I need to do this in every moment. And then something would come in and it'd almost feel like a force in my chest saying, no, no, now's not the time. Now you need to think about this. Now you need to do that. And, you know, if you, if you quit worrying, I can, I can distinctly remember being at the end of my, my college days when I first got into yoga and um, I came from a mostly Italian family. And I don't know what you know about Italian families and maybe it's just Italian families that have been in uh, the United States for a generation or two. But they're just, they worry about everything. I mean, every time I would, I, would, I would drive somewhere and there was a little bit of rain, my grandmother would lose her mind. Oh, be careful. Don't kill yourself. I'm thinking, look, it's just raining a little bit. I'm not going to kill myself. Uh, if, I did, if, I, if I drove more than two hours away, you thought I was flying to the moon and 20 million things could go wrong. And one day I remember sitting um, out against a column it was in the morning. It was right after a philosophy class and the sun was shining down. And at the time I, I smoked and I was just sitting there smoking a cigarette and I, I recognized, wow, my mind is so messed up <laughs> because the way I look at it is if I'm not worried about something, then something's going to go wrong. And when that dawned on me, I thought, holy moly, that's the way I've been living my life for the last 19 years as though I have to worry. Otherwise something's going to go wrong. And many people live that way. And so uh, as I contemplated the sutra and now instruction in yoga and the fact that yoga had to be practiced now, I recognized I have to let go of that. Right now, I'm just sitting here smoking a cigarette in a beautiful morning. I've had a wonderful philosophy class. I really enjoyed it. The sun's shining in. Sure, my grandparents are going to die one day. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to be this young forever. Um, 
who knows how much money I have in the bank to pay my rent, but none of that matters at the moment. <laughs> so now I'm just going to be where I am. And there's almost this repulsion to, to doing that. So maybe you find that to be the case too, where you know right now I need to be present with what is right here, right now. But there's a repulsion because you think that's not right because I'll worry about that in the future, being okay now. I'll, I'll deal with that in the future after I've done enough pranayamas, after I've studied enough of the Yoga Sutras, after I've cleared up all of my karma. Well, if you're stuck in that loop, you will never come to a point in time where it will be enough. So you have to start doing it now. You have to start accepting that right now is enough. Right now is enough. If it's a beautiful moment, right now, be in that beautiful moment. Don't live in the fear and the anxiety of things that have happened in the past. If it's a beautiful moment now, be in that beautiful moment now. If then later on, you get a call from your debt collector saying, pay your bills, all right, that's the time to worry. And then go get your checkbook out or make a plan about how you're going to get a second job or quit spending as much money on Cheetos. Um, that's the time to do that. So at that point in time, you're not going to think back to that beautiful moment when you're sitting outside because you're, you don't want to be attached to what's not there anymore. So practicing of, of yoga really is in every moment being there and practicing yoga. Now, practice yoga. Now, instruction of yoga. What does that mean? Now, you are working to let go of the changes and fluctuations in your consciousness. And in the beginning, for most people, the only way that's done is during those few moments of meditation, because that is the intensive time where you can say, I really have no other reason to be thinking about anything else. So I'm going to work on not doing that. And that can happen through focusing on a mantra. Uh, many pranayamas, alternate nostril breathing, so simple, Nadi Shodhana, simple, easy. Anyone can do it. Doing that for 12 to 24 rounds will begin to move you into that letting go of these changes. Close your eyes, practice uh, um, alternate nostril breathing. If you don't know how to do that, Google it. It's simple. Um, doing that for 12 to 24 rounds will give you a, a momentary glimpse of, ah, okay, I'm a little more internalized. I have a little less of my life force going out to these distractions. And then you build upon it. Then inside you say, now I'm paying more and more attention to this. I'm feeling the breath as it comes in my left nostril and goes out my right nostril. I start to get distracted. Okay, so I'm feeling the breath as it comes in my right nostril and goes out my left nostril. It's so simple. In one of the last uh, Patreon question and answer uh, sessions for uh, Patreon backslash Kriya Yoga or forward slash patreon.com slash Kriya Yoga site, once a month we have... Um, a discussion, a Q&A, a live Q&A for um, tier three members, the meditation support members. And um, someone said, you know, sometimes I sit down and I don't even want to do alternate nostril breathing or, or, or the pranayama because I, I just want to be there. Well, the practices are very useful to your mind, body, and nervous system. So why not just be there while you're doing them? Because if you can just be there while you're doing them, 
well, then later on, no matter what you're doing, you can just be there. So that, that meditation session, even though you think you just want to close your eyes and zone out, you do the, the techniques, the practices for a reason, because they give a specific, easy chance to see that while you are doing something, or it looks like you're doing something, uh, you, can, you can be present. So not only do you want to continue doing your techniques, not just for the sake of how it balances the nervous system and the, 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 the inner states of your consciousness, but because that is a very simple opportunity to be engaged in a process while releasing attachment to everything else, while letting go of these changes and fluctuations in your consciousness. Because what's that person doing? They're doing alternate nostril breathing. What, the, what are they thinking? Well, I can't wait to get done so that I can be fully present. Well, that's a concept. Why not just do alternate nostril breathing and just be fully present? <laughs> that way, when you're done doing alternate nostril breathing, you will be even deeper into the process of, uh, as Lahiri um, Mahasaya says, abiding in the after effects of, of certain techniques. So to recap, when the changes and fluctuations and definitions are ended, meaning you're letting go of your attention on them. Then the seer, which is what you really are, abides in its own true nature. Then the seer abides in its own true nature. And this is something that um, comes in time. You catch glimpses of it by practicing the techniques, but you also can contemplate who am I or what am I and that requires taking time every day to observe the body, the mind, the drama in your life, and asking, okay, well, what is it or who am I that is aware that this exists, that is aware of these concepts that I have of the body, of the mind, of my preferences, of the drama in my life or the joy in my life? And you begin to pull back to that witnessing presence, which is pointed to as the eye or the seer. And in time, through the practice of yoga, not just meditation, the full practice of yoga, you begin to recognize that there is an eye, there is a seer, there is an awareness which is eternal, which observes the body, observes the mind, observes your relationships, observes your activity. And whether you're doing a certain activity, feeling a certain way, aware of your body or not, it is still present. And through the ending of the changes and definitions and fluctuations in consciousness, you begin to, you begin to recognize that that is what you are. And so then the more that happens, as time goes on, the less re reactive you become to anything. And the less reactive you become, the more peaceful you become. Because let's say, uh, let's take a teenager, for example, who has just been given the car of their dreams. And so they've got wealthy parents and they've just been given the car of their dreams. Um, they love that car. They're identified with that car. They polish it every day. Um, they make sure the tires are just perfectly inflated. They check the oil all the time. They're making sure that car is running smooth. Now they go to a friend's house 
and they just make the, the turn not quite right and a, a tree branch just barely hits the side of the car. Not even, not even a scratch that gets into the paint, just knocks off some of the wax. And they get out and they freak out. Ah, oh, my car, what has happened to my car? Well, that is like someone who is so identified with their body and their mind that the littlest thing happens, they become reactive. But let's say you meet someone who's been alive long enough. They don't even practice yoga. They've just been alive long enough that they've got some sense. And they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and um, they're driving their car down the road and something happens to it. Do they even have a blip or even uh, a momentary response of, Oh, no, no, because they don't identify with the car. They know the car is just a vehicle to get them from point A to point B. If something ever really happened to the car, they just get a new one. That's the difference between someone who is all caught up in physicality or their body, mind, personality, and someone who's been alive long enough that they've realized that they're not their car. Well, through the practice of yoga, as you mature, you recognize you're not your body, which means if something goes wrong with it, Okay, you deal with it as best you can. Um, you try to preserve your body, but you're not going to react. You're not going to freak out. You know that bodies are things that come and they go. If friendships come and they go, you don't lose your mind every time you, you have a loss in your life. You feel the grief of the pain, but you let that pass because you know other friends come. In the same way that you know, uh, as you recognize what you are as, as a spiritual being, as an awareness, the bodies come and they go. Um, so through the practice of yoga, you begin to recognize this. And once more, this is one of those reasons why very few people make progress in yoga practice. Because even the ones who say, oh, I want to go all the way, you start telling them that they have to let go of all the things that they're attached to, the subtle things, the subtle definitions of self, and they'll start pushing back. One of the biggest obstacles to self-realization as Mr. Davis would say over and over and over again, and pretty much every aware, reasonably alert uh, spiritual teacher would say that the biggest obstacle that we have is identifying with our false sense of self. Because right now that's all that we know. It's hard to conceive of a fact that you exist not in this body or in this personality or in this mind. But that's why we practice yoga so that we can go within and start to have that awareness come forth, that inner awakening come forth. And then you mature, you recognize the purpose of life. You recognize that again, yoga is not here for your human self. Your human self is here for the practice of yoga. Like you are not there for the car. The car is there to help transport you places. That's what this life is about because of television dramas, because of stories, because of what our parents have taught us about the importance of having children and leaving a legacy and um, contributing to the world and having plenty of money and all these sorts of things. Uh, because that's been in our mind at such a young age, it's hard to shake. This doesn't mean that you become inhuman. You still react appropriately. Uh, others in the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program and even in the, the Patreon discussions have heard me talk about this. You learn to love for real. What we think of as love is usually clinginess and attachment. But what if your love was free? 
What if you were with someone and you just loved them? You were devoted to them. But then when it was time to go to your job or to travel across the world, it's okay, you let it go because that love was there in that moment. And of course you might see them again and the love can be there again, but the, the cleanness and the attachment doesn't make it better. In fact, that makes it more binding. Uh, when we talked about in one of the last discussions, the idea of sattva, again, many of you might not be familiar with this, but I think most of you are. In the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, throughout the text, there is this emphasis towards sattva, developing a sattvic life. Um, there are the three gunas, which again, uh, if you want to read about those, please see Kriya Yoga continuing the lineage of enlightenment. There's discussion on the gunas or the, the great cosmic forces. But there's tamas, which is heaviness, inertia, darkness. When we're engaged in that kind of life, we're apathetic. We don't really care a whole lot. And then when, when things happen, our response is typically like anger or uh, violence. When we're living a rajasic life, that's a life of transformation. We want to make things happen. And so um, we're trying to make things better all the time. We think we are the doers. We can make this better. And that's false. It's, rajas means mist. It's like the mist that obscures the truth of the nature that we are not the doers. We are participating. We are vehicles in a sense, but we are not the ones making things happen. Um, when you're engaged in rajas, you're constantly, you, you are constantly caught up in the future. We've got to make this better. Uh, and when it's really active, we become passionate. When we become passionate, we lose our sense of clarity. It's okay. We need each of these things. Thomas helps us to be stable and to rest, to rejuvenate when it's appropriate to do that. Rajas helps us to make the changes so that we can focus on what's important. The problem is when it becomes too much, when that's all we do is change, 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 where that's all we do is sleep, sleep, sleep. There's a place for all of it. But the final in sattva is related to clarity, inspiration, light. And you know that you're in sattva when you are doing something and you are just doing it for the love of it. You're not doing it because you, you need it there to make you feel good about yourself. You're not doing it because you really want it for later. You're just there and it's just beautiful. And there's nothing else in your awareness other than what's happening. That's a, a sattvic state. They say that uh, individuals who are engaged in sattva, they don't do anything for any other reason than because of love, of love. So in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, there's this idea that you cultivate sattva because sattva is as close to truth and source as we can get this side of human experience. But it then goes on to say, but you have to let go of that too. And many people get confused there. Well, I have to let go of that? They think it's like a, a, a moral um, imperative that they practice, they exist in sattva. Well, if you're doing it for morality, you're not doing it for its own sake. <laughs> But sattva is light, is clarity, is inspiration. That's why when you practice meditation and yoga, they say that in the Bhagavad Gita, the highest form of, of yoga is um, just doing it for its own sake. Why are you meditating? For its own sake. Not, not to make you happier, less anxious, better, because it's the thing to do. Um, why are you practicing yoga? Why are you practicing truthfulness? Why are you being harmless? Not because you want to be a good person, or please someone, or feel good about yourself, but because it's the right thing, it's just the thing to do. Um, that's sattva, and you have to let go of it. You don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about letting go of sattva right now. 
you have to work on developing sattva. And that's what yoga practice does. Because what happens when sattva is developed, it's like having a healthy, loving relationship without, uh, without clinginess or uh, attachment or um, codependence. When you are in a healthy, loving relationship, whether it's a friend, a relative, uh, a lover, a spouse, a child, when you are with that person, you are with them right then and there. You are enjoying your time together. When it's time to part ways, you go do your thing, they go do their thing, great. You, you just love the time with them so much that you don't need any more than that. It's perfect. You let it go. It, it's, it's all about the love of the moment. And so it's easy to let it go because you know that that person is capable, that you are capable, that you're going to go through life, that there will be issues and you'll come together and you'll go apart. And one day you won't ever see each other again, but you are so in the moment, you are so present with the love that is free of attachment, that that's, that's the value of it. That moment of love that is free, not wanting to repeat it, not holding on to what was there before, but that moment, which is always now. That's sattva. So when you finally experience pure sattva, you've, you've established yourself in sattva for its own state, stake. Um, you then, or for its, for its own sake, yeah, pardon me, for its own sake, um, then you're free. Then it, it doesn't matter whether you're, 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 you're doing certain things or not because you're free. You are constantly in that state of love and inspiration. And that is much different than that clingy, think about the future kind of state that most of us are stuck in. So you might not be able to imagine it right now, but through the practice of yoga, you, ah, that's what it's like. And then, it under, then you understand what it means that eventually you have to let go of that too, which essentially means that you, you have to be adaptable. Sometimes you have to engage in tamasic uh, activity. You have to rest. Sometimes you have to engage in rajasic activity. Something needs improved. You improve it. So you're mostly sattvic, but now you can step down into rajas or step down into tamas, and it's not going to change anything. It's not going to blur your awareness like it does now, because most people are caught up in tamas, caught up in rajas, too identified with it. Um, so that comes later. But for those of you who might you might have already read or studied the yoga sutras and had some issues with what do you mean I need to let go of sattva too? That's, that's what it's about. So yoga is abiding in the seer's own nature. And we will go on to sutra number four because it kind of ties all this theme together. Um, I can't, I'll do my best to pronounce this one. This is a, this is one I've, I've not necessarily had much ease in pronouncing. Vritti sarupyam itaratra, which means vritti, definitions, sarupyam, conformity, identification, itaratra, otherwise. So what this is saying is the practice of yoga, all these four sutras together, yoga happens now. Your practice is now. Whether you're meditating or otherwise. Meditation is that specific training time every day where it allows you to hit it hard. And by hard, I don't mean forceful. I just mean with intention and attention. So yoga happens now. What is yoga? 
yoga occurs when you are not defining life or yourself or mainly yourself through definitions, ideas, objects. So when the changes and fluctuations in consciousness cease, when those changes and fluctuations in consciousness cease, then you, you abide in your own nature. You abide as the self. That's it. Stop those fluctuations. It's already there. You're never going it, to, it, it, it's always present. So you're just in a sense, removing the obstacles or, or removing the layer. It's always been there. It's always been under the blanket. You're just pulling the blanket away. But that final sutra, when you are not abiding as the self, then what happens? Then you are conforming to definitions. Then you are, you are living through definitions, which will rise and which will fall. And that is the source of pain. If you don't ride the waves well, and yoga does teach you to ride them well. So yoga doesn't stop the waves. Yoga teaches you to ride them well. When you're not abiding as the self and you are caught up in anger, that's all there is is anger. Well, now you are defined as anger. When you are abiding as the self and you are caught up in, in the rapture of some kind of joy, well, you are defining yourself as that joy. That joy is going to go away, which means you're going to eventually feel huh, not quite right. The anger, if you start to identify with it, when it goes away, you get uncomfortable. Wait a minute. Why do I... Why don't I feel angry anymore? And you'll find a reason to feel it. But if you keep practicing yoga and meditation such that you catch, you, you keep catching these glimpses of the self, of experience of the self, really not catching a glimpse, but abiding as the self, you learn to just stay there. In the same way that the, as that kid who with the car gets older and older, he starts to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm not the car. You know, the car takes me where I need to go. That scratch isn't going to ruin my day you begin to see what you truly are as the driver in a sense in that situation rather than the vehicle. So the human life you begin to see as the vehicle. And I really wish that I had a way to explain to you what it's like to experience life um, as a vehicle rather than a thing that you have to make perfect. Uh, that just comes through the practice. You start to feel it. It starts to become more apparent to you. And this is why we're practicing yoga. And this is what the first um, four sutras in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali lay out for us in the practice of yoga and in the practice of Kriya Yoga. And everything after that, everything after those four sutras is either further clarifying the understanding of how that's done or how you need to understand it, what the case is in that situation, or practices or how you live your life so that you you begin to realize that so Patanjali lays out this is what's happening yoga happens now when there are no more depth when you're not defining yourself through anything that can change you then abide as the self by staying there that's yoga and at any other time you're not practicing you are you you've lost yourself in definitions from that point forward now he starts saying these are the obstacles. These are the things you have to be aware of. These are the things you have to embody, the way you have to act, be. These are the steps you take, the eight limbs of yoga. If you do that without attachment, just as duty, because it is the purpose of this human life, then these first four sutras become clear to you. 
So if you've ever been confounded or confused by how it's defined, you figure it out by doing the work, which is described in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the Bhagavad Gita, your uh, local or non-local uh, spiritual teacher who's spent some time doing it. And you learn it for yourself. You, you recognize the truth of the matter. Okay. <clears throat> so this is what I wanted to cover uh, for you. So that you can hopefully begin considering ways to engage your, your process. Now, I wanted to do a bit of a meditation with you, but we haven't really got to any questions. So we'll take the next 15 minutes or so to speak to questions. And what I'd like you to do on your own is go to youtube.com slash Yoga online, go to the playlists tab, and just pick one of those, uh, the playlist that deals with guided meditations, Pick one of those and meditate on your own with one of those guided meditations, if necessary, once we conclude, to let this sink in. Uh, if you already have a solid meditation routine, take a moment to consider, all right, how can I, even now, begin applying just a little bit of what I've learned here to how I'm approaching meditation? So begin from this point forward thinking about what you've been doing, which is wonderful that you've been doing something at all. But now start contemplating what stuck out to me in this lecture that I feel I need to go a little deeper into, I need to work on, I need to, to focus on. So meditate in that way after we conclude here. So if you have a question, please type it in the chat box. If you do not have a question, say, I do not have a question or no, and I'll know who's got questions and who don't, who doesn't. So first question. Relating to the presence process of Michael Brown, is Roger referring to control and Thomas referring to sedation? Exactly. So an excellent book, if you're not familiar with it, uh, to help you prepare for the intensive yoga practice with, that I recommend um, is The Presence Process by Michael Brown. Uh, it really helps you to kind of get in and see what your little quirks and idiosyncrasies and complexes are and how to begin to attend to them. Many people can do very well with that process on their own. But again, I will always recommend that you work with a counselor, a therapist, or someone with an objective viewpoint to help you see those blind spots uh, as you go, whether you're just preparing for meditation and Kriya Yoga process, or whether you're already engaged in it. Because as you go, things come up, you change, you need to become aware of things and it is helpful to have a outside observer or a guide, uh, a professional guide to help you. And one of the reasons in the beginning, I don't recommend that you do this with your guru or spiritual teacher is because that's one real easy way to lose your love for your guru or your spiritual teacher, because most of the time they're not trained professionals or psychologists or counselors. They just see a way of doing it and they'll point it out to you bluntly and it's, it's really easy for people to get chased away from the process because the teacher doesn't want to waste your time. And so if you're attached to something or overly identified with something, he's not going to work you through it so that you come to your own conclusion most of the time. He's going to point it out to you and your ego is going to recoil. And if that happens enough, you're going to say, oh, I don't want to be with this person anymore. They don't, they're not teaching me yoga. They're just beating me up. <laughs> 
when really they might just be pointing out certain ways that you're overly attached to things which are harmful to you. So if you do that with a counselor, a therapist, or a minister that's objective, that blame can go to them. <laughs> All right. So no questions so far. Um, but yes, Rajas is control. You see something in life, you want to make it better. Why? Because you want to control it. Thomas, you see something in life, you either want to run away and avoid it or stick your head in the sand and hope it just passes. Um, we need Thomas and we need Rogers because you need to rest. And sometimes you need to make a plan and change things so that you can accomplish a goal which is supportive of uh, your yoga practice. Again, it comes down to when we allow ourselves to be defined by or overly attached to change. Those are the type A, type, type A people who are always going to the gym because they got to do it harder, do it better, get stronger. Or they always have to make their career better. You know what? If your body is healthy and you're going to the gym three times a week and you're doing weight training and you're working on your heart, that's great. Let it be enough. Don't stress out about it. Don't overtrain. If you've got a good job and you've got enough money to pay your bills and put some for saving and that gives you free time to meditate and practice yoga, well, you don't need a hundred thousand more dollars or a bigger office to do that. Remember, uh, this life is here for your practice. You are not here for this life. Um, manage your resources well. I remember being uh, an astrologer and I was pretty good at what I did. And um, people would say to me all the time, you know, if you, if you just did this, if you worked harder here, if you spent more time doing this, you could make hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I said, well, I'm not doing this to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> I'm doing this so that I can be helpful to people and so that I have enough money so I don't have to worry about where my food is coming from or if I've got enough electricity so I can sit and I can meditate. That's why I do it. Uh, so your life, you need to think about your life in that regard too. Particularly people from, from India, this comes up a lot, especially in my, my, uh, my um, astrology work. Um, there's always this question of how do I get more? How do I get a greater position? How do I increase my education? Uh, well, you got to back off of that a little bit. You need what you need to have a life so that you can practice yoga. Anything more is excessive and a waste of time from the spiritual perspective. It's true for people in America and other countries as well, but I've just noticed that when interacting with um, Indians, um, there's just quite an emphasis on getting a better position uh, increase in, well, maybe Americans are lazy. <laughs> I'm an American, and I think that's probably true often. <laughs> so we have to ride that fine that fine line there um, in that regard. <laughs> all right. Not all Americans are lazy. You know, there's always we can make these judgments, but they'll only be true for certain people. Okay, so here's a question. How did you train yourself to ignore the noises from outside? <clears throat> I'm currently in a situation where there's a family with a young kid upstairs and they make heavy noises through the day and night. This is distracting during my meditation, during other activities. I was wondering if I should train myself to ignore or just move to a new place with less noises. Well, <clears throat> I will tell you as one person who is easily disturbed by noises is that there's always going to be noises. <laughs> um, 
I used to think, oh, it's got to be perfectly quiet or the people upstairs, come on, don't they know I'm meditating or that kid should be more quiet or the, the college girl downstairs who just moved in. I wish she quit having sex with her boyfriend. <laughs> you name it. I've, I've been in a living situation where, uh, where that happened <clears throat> or music. That was, that's always a big one. I love music. But when I'm when I lived in a condo and someone moved in and all you can hear is the bass, boom, 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 you know I love music and I'm sure I've driven people nuts with that too, but I couldn't stand it. So what I did was uh, I realized that everything is consciousness, and so I don't know if I've done it in the in the playlist videos, but um. Uh, Usually, I, I like to start out meditations by just being aware of what's going on around you, as though that is what the current state of consciousness is, which means you start out by feeling the body. So you close your eyes and you sit up straight, and you just feel the body. And you're not going for a blissful, deep relaxation. You're just noting, oh, all right, well, I feel some tension here. I feel pretty good here. Overall, the body is kind of warm. My legs are cold. You're just noticing what's going on in the body, whether you've got a sharp pain or it just feels wonderful. It doesn't matter. You're just observing it. And you start maybe taking a minute or two to feel the body because that's bringing your awareness to your nervous system. What is the current state of your consciousness right now as you're going to meditate? Then what I do is I feel the breath. Just feel the breath. What is it like to breathe? If distractions arise, I admit to myself, well, what I'm doing now is paying attention to the breath. So I do. I do that for a minute or two. And then wherever I am, whether I'm in a meditation hall or my meditation room where I'm in my office where I can hear motorcycles going down the road or someone talking in the next room uh, or uh, a teenager on the second floor jumping rope. That really drives me crazy. So I'm still working on that. Uh, <laughs> um, what I do is I just sit there and I just admit, this is just what consciousness is right now. There's no, who cares if someone's jumping rope? It doesn't matter if there's someone talking. That's just what's happened. That's what God is doing. And if you can start to use that kind of terminology, that is what God is doing. Well, who are you to complain? <laughs> it's God. So you love God as God is right now. And that might take some time because your brain and your nervous system are programmed. They've got little triggers in there. For some reason, that jumping rope, it, it links back to something in the lizard brain that you're not quite aware of. Or the kid running around upstairs, it links back to something that troubles you a little bit. So you have to kind of breathe through it. And, and once you can breathe through it enough and admit, this is God. No one's being murdered. Um, I'm warm enough. I'm safe. If all these things are met and there's just some kind of noises, let it be God. Let it be what God is right now. And when you start to do that, it becomes okay. And when it becomes okay, it becomes less of a problem, and it becomes easier for you to then, okay, well, that's what God is up to, so I don't have to pay attention to it anymore. It can do whatever it wants, and then I begin to practice internalizing my awareness. So if there are noises there, that is the perfect opportunity to say, all right, love God. Now, internalize my awareness, because really what I need to do is internalize my awareness. That way, if you can internalize your awareness when there's a kid running around upstairs, that's easy. Now, when something actually truly happens in your life that's tr 
troublesome. You've got the practice that you know how to do it. So you use these little things in your meditation as an opportunity to practice going within. So you have to ask yourself, is this, am I hearing people being murdered and gunshots and it's driving me crazy? Well, yeah, then you might want to move if you can. Otherwise, if you can't, what do people in prison do? They have to tune all that stuff out. And so oftentimes, at least one or two people I've talked to, um, they've become really good meditators because they've been in situations like that and they've, they've had to go within deeply. So everything's an opportunity for you. And your life is set up such that the opportunities are given to you to work on what you need to work on. You can meditate in such a way with the mantra, spirit and nature, just not, not the chant that I was doing. You can do that too. But let's say on the inhale, you hear the word spirit. So your eyes are closed, you meditate on the inhale, spirit. On the exhale, nature. On the inhale, spirit. On the exhale, nature. That's stage one. That's enough, and that's a wonderful mantra. But to get the realization of that, what do you do? On the inhale, when you hear internally the word spirit, you do your best, however you can do it for yourself, to abide as the witness. You become the witness, the eternal. That, that which experiences everything. So on the inhale, spirit, you move back into that space of the witness, that you are witnessing your body, you are witnessing your mind, you are witnessing your emotions, you are witnessing the distractions, you are witnessing the meditation process happening. When you exhale, so spirit, when you exhale nature, well now you admit the changeable. The body is nature, it's changeable. The sounds you hear, that's nature. It's part of God, but it's changeable. The way you feel is changeable. The images that come into your mind are changeable. They're, they're nature. So you're going back and forth like a wave. And you're, you're, you are, in a sense, even though you're, you're pulling back as the witness, in that moment, yes, great, you're the witness. But then as you exhale and you say nature, you're admitting the truth of the fact that nature exists and it's changeable and it's part of this process. So inhale, you pull back into spirit, into the witness. However you make that real for yourself, and it will evolve over time, but you make that real for yourself. As you exhale nature, your eyes are closed, but now you do consciously hear the birds outside, hear the people next door, feel your feet against the floor, feel the body, see the thoughts in the mind. And in that instant of exhale nature, you do as much of that as you can in a relaxed state. Then as soon as you start to inhale, you let that go. You make the shift instantly back to the witness. And that's going to take practice. But the beautiful thing about that is the more you do that as a meditation technique, um, you then become very clear on what the, what the seer is as you abide in its own true nature. And you become very clear on what nature is, as changeable phenomena, which rises and fall. That takes practice. It takes work. And it's something you would do over the course of weeks and months and probably years. And you have to keep it alive. I mean, you don't just make it mechanical. You don't just, oh, okay, there's a light, there's a bird. No. Nature, the changeable part of God, the bird, the sounds outside, 
but now it's time to inhale, let it go. The witness, that which is aware of all this, the I that has seen and experienced this. Now you exhale back to nature, uh, feel the body, feel your joints, see the thoughts in your mind. Now it's time to inhale back to spirit as the witness that has the capacity to even know that. So the chant spirit nature, uh, you can use that as an intro, but the actual technique itself is just simply spirit on the inhale, nature on the exhale, but engaging in it, not just repeating the words, but being aware of the changeable aspect of the infinite divine. Anything that you see, feel, touch, experience, remember, dream about, and then you pull back in as the witness, that which has seen experiences, which persisted through all of those changes of experience. So I encourage you to give that a, a shot. Try that. Maybe maybe try it in, in, including it, say, five minutes, ten minutes a day um, after your meditation practice and see what happens. And you might want to continue doing it uh, until it becomes so obvious and real to you. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community, at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.